The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This morning, I thought I'd talk a little bit more about happiness. I've had some thoughts this week based on some conversations with some of you. So I thought I'd share them. It's covering some of the same material that I've talked about on Sunday and Monday and during the week, but maybe that's a slightly different angle, so... So our normal or usual way as a human species of considering happiness or interpreting happiness is as dependent on conditions in the world. And we try to arrange those conditions ourselves. So we try to manipulate the world to create the conditions for happiness. And this kind of this kind of happiness is inherently unstable and unreliable because the conditions of the world are unstable and unreliable. And so we end up on this kind of cycle or spinning wheel of trying to keep the conditions in some sort of state that promotes happiness, but they're just continually decaying, so we're continually trying to prop them up. So that kind of happiness has an inherent dissatisfaction to it because it is so unreliable. And then as we start to practice and become familiar with being in the present moment, there's a kind of happiness that's still related to the external world, still related to conditions of the external world, but it's moving towards depending on conditions internally depending on conditions in our minds and hearts. So this is the, um, the happiness kind of of coming into the present moment and meeting our sense world, where it's not so much dependent on the arrangement of the sense world, but that we have, um, uh, you know, just the presence of mind to meet our sense experience in the present moment. And then simple things, the breeze on your cheek, the feeling of sun on your skin, the smell of a rose, become intensely pleasant and very pleasurable, very delightful. So this is still a meeting of internal, this is a meeting of external conditions in the world with an internal condition of mind. Now, if you're meeting something like an automobile accident, that will not be probably felt as pleasurable, even though you're in the present moment. So it's really, it's still dependent on external conditions, that kind of, of pleasure, of happiness. 
But that kind of happiness is is much um, less dependent on us setting up many kinds of conditions. It's more about letting go and coming into a place in our internal world, in our internal mind, of being present, being in the present moment. So we are looking at how we can cultivate the internal conditions for happiness. Still conditioned happiness, but more able to be, maybe I should say less, less dependent on outside conditions. So it's, there's a little more sense of that we have some say over that kind of happiness. So there's the, the happiness of external conditions and then there's the internal conditions meeting the external conditions and then there's a happiness that's more directly related to simply the internal conditions, unrelated to what's happening in the world. And this is more about the cultivation of mind. And I, I look at this as being a, kind of two sides to this kind of internal happiness. There's the, the internal happiness that results from the cultivation of concentration, that does depend somewhat on external conditions being appropriate for development of concentration. But there's a, a, in the cultivation of concentration, there can be an intense happiness, initially a rapture, a bliss, leading to a just sweet happiness leading to a very tranquil happiness leading to an extremely balanced happiness through cultivating the uh, the concentration and this is not the same kind of happiness that meets the external sense world it's not a sense pleasure happiness it's a, it's a it's a happiness of the mind When the Buddha left his home to pursue happiness, to pursue the end of suffering, he first met the teachings of uh, concentration practice and cultivated those and found, well, they didn't quite lead to the kind of happiness he was seeking for. It was still conditional. So this, this happiness of concentration is a conditional kind of happiness. And then he decided from that, he decided to move to, because that was pleasure in the world, I mean, pleasure of the mind, he decided, well, he'd try the ascetic practices, which is just, you know, completely uh, um, denying the body What it, what it, general, what we generally think of as it needs for life. So he became extremely emaciated and um, 
apparently experienced great pain in his body through the, the practices of asceticism. And at some point, he uh, realized this too. He was near death through his practices. And he realized this too was not the way to the ending of suffering. And in that state, he had a recollection of a time when he was a child and he was sitting in the fields watching his father perform a ceremonial uh, sowing ritual in the spring. He was sitting under a rose apple tree. And at that age, I don't know how old he was, um, but he entered into a state of I think I think it said that it's the first meditation, which I believe it means the first, the first jhana, which is a, a state of bliss, again removed from sense pleasure. And in that recollection, he he realized or he thought, okay, I've practiced extreme asceticism, and before I started the practice of meditation, I was practicing the pleasure of sense pleasure. So it's basically the, the asceticism of the body or the pleasure of the body. He had explored those two routes. And in this memory, he realized this pleasure of the concentration is not a sense pleasure concentration. It's not a sense pleasure. So it's not that he had, there'd been this idea in his mind that he needed to avoid any kind of pleasure in order to cultivate the path of awakening. And in that realization, he realized, well, that pleasure of concentration is not a sense pleasure. And that it's, it, is, it is a stepping stone. It could be a stepping stone on the path to awakening. So even though he had learned the concentration practices before, he hadn't understood how they could lead to complete liberation. So in this um, memory arising, he realized he needed to nourish his body and allow his body to be able to support the kind of happiness that comes from concentration to lead to as a stepping stone towards what he hoped was possible, full liberation from suffering. Now there was nobody at that time that taught what he was looking for, so it was a path he needed to find himself. But he had the sense that that happiness of mind that comes from cultivating the mind is a very skillful happiness, not dependent on sense pleasure, not dependent on the world but dependent on what we cultivate in our minds and hearts. So there's that kind of happiness, the happiness of concentration. And then the Buddha also found the happiness of insight, which is, again, it's related to our cultivation of mind and heart. 
as we are mindful of our experience with the understanding that clinging and craving lead to suffering, that we need to let go of what we hold on to. So it's those two things coming together, the mindfulness and the understanding of letting go of craving. That's the piece the Buddha had to, to figure out for himself. Those two coming together, just if you are mindful and just keep looking at where am I clinging, where am I clinging, where am I craving, what's the wanting here? Is there a subtle wanting that I'm not noticing? That movement of being present and recognizing the suffering of craving will lead us towards, the the teachings tell us it will lead us towards unconditional happiness. On the way to that, I can't really speak to the final goal at this point. <laughs> but I can say that in my experience, the, the meeting of mindfulness and the looking at craving, the looking at clinging, the letting go moment by moment of craving in the moment, there is a, a great happiness that comes from that. So we see, we see some experience of frustration or anger or aversion arising in our experience. And it's just an arising experience. It's like there's there's a there's like a field of experience. So this is a kind of a way I'm I'm experiencing things a little more these days. There's this just field of experience. And every now and and you know, the 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 kind of feeling of self or the feeling of resistance, the feeling of uh, frustration can arise in that field. Then it's not a problem. It's like, oh, look at that thing. Self is arising. <laughs> there it is. At one, at one point I was on a retreat last week where we were really exploring this and I was in this field and, and really able to stay connected to the field. And then, then there was this rising of a sense of tension and contraction. It's like, oh, self, self is arising. And it was just like, it almost felt like it tickled. You know, it's like, oh, look at that. The self is arising. Oh my gosh. This, this. It's not a problem. And it can be a kind of a joyful experience to just be there. Oh, this is just the next thing that's happening. This is, so it's, it, it's the happiness of recognizing impermanence, that clinging to anything leads to suffering, and the happiness of recognizing that what we think of as me is just a process and can be known as a process.
So this kind of happiness is, is even less, de- it's less dependent on constructing a state of mind. The concentration happiness is more dependent on constructing a state in the mind to, to focus and hold the experience. The happiness of insight is it, it, it's more open. It it is still conditioned. I mean, the the ability to be in a state of balance and equanimity is still a conditioned state. But it is much less dependent when we can. The more familiar we get with that state, the easier and easier it is to be there the easier and easier it gets to be balanced around whatever is happening. So that kind of happiness becomes more accessible in our daily lives. It's not dependent on being silent in sitting meditation. We can carry it with us. And it takes some effort, it takes some work to cultivate, to to dedicate ourselves to coming back over and over and over again, being willing to be with the feelings of self and frustration and anger when they don't feel, when we're not quite able to just be and see it. Oh, look at that. Because we can't always be that balanced. But knowing that possibility makes it easier, it begins to make it easier for us to be with the difficult states as they arise. It's like the knowing, knowing that possibility allows us to be a little more spacious around the difficulties. And then the Buddha says there's the happiness of the unconditioned. Which inspires me, but I don't really you know i don't i don't i don't really know what that means and there are, there are different uh, interpretations of actually what that means i ran into one teacher who says well that unconditioned means unconditioned by greed aversion and delusion and that is one of the definitions of the unconditioned, the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion. And I can kind of intuit what that might be like. So those are just a few thoughts. <laughs> And um, I'd like to hear some more from you about what's happening or any comments about what I just said. Any comments or questions about what I just said? Yeah, Victor. That was a great overview (laughs) of not-self and permanence, Dukkha. It was in a very tangible experiential through the practice of this week sense. So I really appreciate that. Thank you.
Sue. Um, I agree. It was a wonderful overview. Um, in my experience this week, and actually since the Hidden Villa retreat, um, working with um, the difference in quality of, of um, awareness um, to the thinking mind or the doing mind, um, and also seeing selfing arise. Um, one thing that you had mentioned at the beginning of this retreat is having a light touch. And I, I've found that that just keeps coming over and over again, and that's one thing that has really helped me to c- cultivate more of the, um, as you said, the um, internal happiness as opposed to the external happiness. Um, and I find that even with mindfulness, um, bringing that idea of, of a light touch even to that. I mean, maybe part of my inquiry is not so skillful because I'm thinking also of the brain and how there's different areas of the brain. There's the area of the brain that where the ego or the self seems to be, which seems to be the, the doing and the thinking part of the brain. And then there's the other part of the brain, which is the awareness brain. But then... I, um, What's outside of that? Is that the unconditioned? <laughs> so, um, That's a good koan to work with. <laughs> um, so the light touch, I think, is really, really important. Um, And there is, and I talked about this a little bit last night, this idea of prompted and unprompted mindfulness. I don't know how many of you were here for the talk last night. So some of you were. Um, where, you know, the, the, what we normally do to cultivate mindfulness is to, to prompt it. You know, that's, that's the, the familiar way. And that can be done in a very light way. But we tend to get a little heavy around that. Um, so one, one. Um, I'm glad you're finding that your way into that. There's another way that I, I didn't actually mention last night. I think it was kind of underneath the text. But um, so there's that way of working with the prompted mindfulness in a really light way, where you're just using as little energy as possible, really. Kind of like, how little energy do I need to be here? You know, exploring that edge. Because we often over-effort. And that over-efforting makes us tired. It uh, can make us resistant to being present. Um, so yeah, that really light touch. And we'll, we'll lose it. But I, I think in many ways it's more skillful to cultivate that light touch than it is to be grasping. I mean, it's essentially a kind of grasping to the mindfulness with that kind of, got to do this, got to do this. So that light touch in the prompted mindfulness. And ways to play with this, I mean, in, in, uh, in meditation are, you know, just, I've talked about some of these things in the past, um, in sitting meditation, if you are paying attention to the breathing. Just as enough energy as you need to be there for the in-breath. That's it. Then do it again for the out-breath. 
and again for the next in-breath. So that it's just, you know, it doesn't actually take very much energy right now. Notice your in-breath or your out-breath, whatever's happening. That doesn't take much effort. So for the next, like, four or five seconds, just enough energy for the in-breath and then the out-breath and then the in-breath. The prompting is to remember at the end of each half-breath, and this is, this. I have to give Joseph Goldstein credit here. <laughs> this is his, what he calls the secret teaching of of, of uh, breath meditation, of the mindfulness practice, that that's all the energy you need. And actually, you know, just a prompting to be here, be here for the in-breath. That will probably carry you through the two or three seconds of the in-breath. That's all you need. You don't need to kind of hold on to it. And then you just have to remember to prompt yourself for the out-breath. And then prompt yourself for the in-breath. And you can use the noting to do this to help prompt you. For walking meditation, you can do something similar of just enough just enough um, energy to get you the next two steps. And sometimes I pick something on the ground or, you know, some something visual. Okay, can I can I be aware till I get there? That's all I need to do. I just need to get through that step or two. Can I get then another two or three steps? Just kind of pulling yourself along through this very gentle, very light prompting. In daily life practice, the, um, the kind of lightness of touch I like to emphasize has to do with recognizing, and this I talked about last night, recognizing that moment of unprompted mindfulness, where the, the, the mindfulness that just appears. And this happens to us all the time, you know, we wake up into the midst of something, reaching for a glass, pouring our milk, walking over uh, the street. We'll just wake up into the midst of it. In that recognizing of the unprompted mindfulness, that, that's an effortless mindfulness. That arising into that moment of mindfulness doesn't take any effort whatsoever. And then we can kind of, in getting a sense, or as we get a sense for that feeling of the mindfulness as it comes up, we can just kind of incline our minds to hover there without making a lot of effort. It's kind of like, well, I'm here. How long will this last? Not to try to make it last. So not even to prompt it so much, other than that just like, what does it feel like if I just hang out in this space? for a little while. And again, not to, not to hold on to it. So in the, the recognizing or the remembering of that unprompted mindfulness, kind of seeing if you can ride that wave, just kind of hook on to that wave for a little while and see what happens. You know, it might last four seconds, eight seconds, a minute. So thank you for bringing that up. Diana. So I have a question related to that. If um, 
So this is for like mindfulness practice, this not having a lot of effort, having a light touch. I find that I like to effort. I kind of feel like, oh, I must strive, you know, <laughs> achieve, attain, you know, all these things, right? But is, um, is concentration practice, which we haven't been working on here, but is concentration practice where you would apply more effort? Is that a difference between concentration and mindfulness practice? It, it, well, th- there are ways to apply effort in both. And certain teachers really encourage effort, like Upandita encourages effort in the mindfulness practice. Very strong teaching of, you know, efforting. But what, what it's doing, really, that initial efforting, is cultivating a concentration of continuity where then you can begin to let go of the effort. So, um, so I wouldn't always say that mindfulness practice is an effortless practice. Uh, you know, in fact, I think there is, there's definitely a place for using that prompting, which does take effort. But yes, there is more of a sense of... Um, Effort towards a particular state in concentration. It's about constructing a state of mind. The mindfulness is not about constructing, well, it's not about constructing a particular state of experience, but, you know, moving towards that balance or equanimity, which is a constructed state as well. It's a, it's a conditioned state. But I find myself that with my concentration practice, there is a little, it's a little more efforting. Um, but the more and more I work with concentration practice, the more I'm applying the light touch of my mindfulness practice to the cultivation of the concentration. So having that kind of more open uh, awareness of the light touch the way I begin my concentration practice is to, to, to kind of get familiar with, okay, what's that, that light touch feel like? And then in that open space, a breath will appear. And it's like, okay, kind of incline the mind to move towards that breath. So there's a little more sense of moving towards something. And often I'll see almost immediately, <laughs> <laughs> the mind will... Cling on to that breath. As soon as I notice that, I relax, I let go. Okay, go back. And, and just keep going back to that more open, spacious feeling of the light touch. And then coming back to the breath with that light touch until the mind gets used to being with the breath and staying focused without holding like that. It's kind of a gentle kind of inclining. It's like, okay, not ready to be there yet. Okay, we'll go back. We'll hang out for a little while. And breath comes in and see how, how I can be there. And eventually the mind gets to the place where it can just hang out with that breath with a very light touch and stay there. So for me, the more... Um, the more I get familiar with this light touch of practice, the more I use it in all aspects of my meditation. Thank you. That was very helpful. Min? Um, so um, last night I went home and um, my friend... Um, 
asked me to do something, and um, I was like sort of annoyed because I this this was something that I didn't want to do, and I was very tired. And um, I tried saying no, and she kind of like nagged me to do it. So um, I did it, and then um, there was some resistance and um, like annoyance and sort of like resentment toward her. Um, at the time, I, I, I noticed that I was like, oh, I still feel like this even after I meditate and stuff. <laughs> so I wasn't able to like have some space in between. So this morning, um, when I was meditating, I, I tried to reflect on it and maybe um, meditate on the annoyance and the resentment. And um, last night you said, um, something about the wave, riding the wave. So mm -hmm. um, I tried that. Um, I tried to invoke that situation again. And I tried to ride it. And I could, like, feel some kind of pang in my chest. But my mind would be, like, would start activating. And I had, I was, like, saying to myself, I'm right feeling like this. Mm -hmm. You know, she's... <laughs> <laughs> She she asked me to do something. She shouldn't have done done this, and I I felt I felt so justified for feeling annoyed and resentful. Um, and then um, some a question arose like, um, what like what is this self righteousness? Great, I'm so, glad that question arose. <laughs> 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 and what happened <laughs> and then um it was a little little um funny like i i thought it was kind of laughable because i was like a pestilent child like i'm so right you know i'm, I'm, I'm so right feeling this way so um and immediately there was like um i um i dropped something like released something and there was like lightness um, and there was like ease, um, feeling a little bit ease, and I wasn't concentrated on the on the f like annoyance, like solving this annoyance and um, resentment anymore, because I I I saw myself doing it. I saw myself being like very self righteous, and that was like. Um, like seeing myself like oh, another self like uh -huh. like that, uh -huh. so um I was thinking why why do I like suffer in sake of being right and mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was also reminded of um my childhood, like there was a lot of suffering in our, in our household for the sake of being right, so I was very um. Uh, I felt very compassionate toward um, the situation. Like mm. I, I, I was reminded of the situation um, when I was a child, and and um, seeing my parents fight and stuff like that. I was very compassionate. I felt very compassionate toward um, myself as a child, and like um, it kind of like sort of resolved. <laughs> The suffering, I think. Mm -hmm. That was a beautiful description. Thank you, Min. Thank you for sharing that. 
Bill. So going back to some old business from earlier in the week, um, I've uh, uh, gone from not noticing myself um, go through a doorway even once to uh, up to maybe maybe 40% of the time. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, um, And um, I, th I think the, the happiness that comes from each time I notice comes uh, hopefully not so much from a, a sense of ego or accomplishment or, or star on my chest, but uh, um, and that it, it, it is um, pleasant to, uh, be, to have mindful moments. And, uh, and so I, and I, th I think I can see that... that um, being mindful when I go through a doorway, being being aware of that act uh, does spread to other mm -hmm. times mm -hmm. during the day. I think it is um, the intention to try to be present for that action that helps it to spread through the day because the intention of mindfulness is there. And so it, it kind of will kick in at various times of the day, you know, just find yourself, you know, present. And it's, it's kicking in a lot more um, when I'm at home, mm -hmm. where the doorways are that I'm, you know, clued in to be mindful of yes. than it does when I'm outside. So I, I haven't been mindful, you know, come to think of it, I'm just now realizing, um, of passing through a doorway outside of my home uh -huh. in, a, in a different building even even once so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad I'm realizing that so in that recognition that can help you to kind of see if you can uh, add a little bit of juice to the mindfulness you know as you're leaving your home you know kind of like okay I'm leaving my home you know I know I'm going to go through some more doorways here so just kind of, not in a heavy way, but just kind of like, okay, you know, I, I see that I've gotten lost in this situation. So allow the, the mindfulness to kind of, see if you can pique the interest a little bit. I think Gil sometimes calls it adding a little salt. <laughs> Make it a little more interesting. Um, what you notice about being more, more mindful in your home, essentially, this is, this is a great thing to notice as well, essentially, that we can create the conditions for daily life mindfulness in a container, you know, in our workplace or in our home. We can consciously choose to create those conditions. And now what you're noticing is that when you walk through a doorway, it wakes you up because you have been, you, you've been conditioning yourself to be mindful in those situations. And so the act of doing that starts to wake you up. And so more and more and more, you'll, you'll get to notice those things. Um, so it's kind of like, and it's kind of like sitting in meditation. When we sit in meditation in a particular posture, we sit in cross-legged posture, or we sit in our familiar meditation posture, the mind kind of settles into that and it knows how to be aware. We change our posture. We, we hurt our knee. We sit in a chair. It's like, 
how can I, I can't be mindful. <laughs> Suddenly it's like the conditions are changed. And so the, the body and mind get familiar with mindfulness in a particular situation. And we can use that. And then when we move to another situation, we need to kind of go, okay, need to work again. You know, it's like, it's not a mistake that it happens. This is the way our minds work. So what you're noticing is that you're creating the container in your home through the doorways in your home to support mindfulness. And that's a good thing. And then you can notice, okay, this container's helpful. Now, if I change my posture, go to the grocery store, <laughs> it gets harder. So it's like, okay, it's, like, it's just like changing your posture in sitting meditation. Like, okay, I need to add a little more of the prompted style of mindfulness in that situation. In the container at home, it can be more unprompted because there are these cues that support the coming back. But, but if I manage to become more mindful at home, which is a place where I used to not be so mindful, then obviously I can do it in other times. Exactly. Yes, yes. So you, you have proved to yourself it's possible. <laughs> That's um, the development of confidence. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Well, let's sit for two minutes. And in this sitting, don't do anything. Don't try to be mindful. Just notice the mindfulness that's there. Anytime you've noticed you haven't been mindful, you're already mindful. So this is the last morning of our householder retreat. Some of you I know won't be here this evening and I think maybe some of you won't be here tomorrow either. So for those of you who I won't see again in this retreat, thank you for your work this week. Thank you for your practice. 
And um, this is such a gift to, to have this inspiration to bring our mindfulness into our daily lives. It's a gift to the world, not only to yourself, but to the world. So I thank you all for your practice. And for those of you who are going to be here tomorrow, you get to sleep in. (laughs) We start at 9 tomorrow morning. (laughs) Thank you.